focus this year is going to be initially on the book of Genesis. There'll be other scriptures involved, but it's, it's through the book of Genesis. And uh, in preparation for that, uh, they have had uh, the group leaders um, watch um, some different videos and gather together by Zoom to, to let everyone know what's going on and that sort of thing. And one of the videos they had us watch an introduction, uh, they had John Piper speak for about 20 minutes. And I thought it was a very excellent message. And so I've had Roger uh, fix this thing because I'm so technically challenged so that we could see it. And he really does a wonderful job. And I'd like you just to listen to him. If you're not familiar with the book of Genesis and especially the story of Joseph, then I invite you to find it in Genesis that where it's talking about Joseph and read it. But he does such a wonderful job that we're going to see that. So Roger, if you would go ahead and put this up and just try to pay close attention. And if there are questions, uh, we'd be glad to answer them. And um, you can also read for yourself in the book later. So Roger. Let's pray together. Father, as I unite my heart with these Bible study fellowship leaders from around the world, what a privilege. And I thank you for it. And I ask that you would come upon me now as I speak and upon them as they listen so that the transaction would be built on truth, that the name of Jesus would be magnified, that your word would be honored, that we would rely upon the Holy Spirit and not upon ourselves, and that your mission through BSF would advance globally for the great glory of your name. This is what we long for, Lord. We exist to spread a passion for your supremacy in all things, for the joy of all people. So come, cause that to happen now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I think of Bible study fellowship and the, the many people I have known over the last 40 years who have taught in Bible study fellowship, I think of people who live and die by what the Bible teaches. That's what I think of. People who see and write <laughs> on, on their website this, God's truth to be studied, savored, and lived out. That's the Bible. And when I read that, I said, that's my word, savored. <laughs> no, it's not my word. It's God's word, right? Sweeter than honey. Or Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Savored, that's the right word when you come to the Bible, if your heart is in tune with the worth of scriptures. So I say all of that to let you know that I love what you do. I love what BSF is about. And I counted a huge privilege to have a few minutes to encourage you to press on and to give yourself unstintingly to the glorious calling of teaching other people, not just what the Bible says, but how to see it right for themselves. So what I've been asked to do now in this message is to focus on the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, which is what BSF is or will be studying along with other things. And I'm supposed to draw out of this story truths that will establish you and motivate you in your task of leading people into the discovery of God's Word. It's a story of how God Himself, and this is what makes it so provocative, 
It's not just the story of how God rescues a people from famine. It's a story of how God himself brings his own people into life-threatening extinction. He brings them in to life-threatening extinction, all the while planning an unimaginable rescue from his own calamity. That's the story of Joseph. He brings his own promise to the brink of failure. He brings his own promise to the brink of failure only to show he's been in charge all along and he's been planning a God-exalting deliverance. So let's trace the story and see if I can show you these things so that you can see them for yourself and not just take my word for it. The story begins in chapter 37. Joseph is 17 years old. He's a son, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He's 17 years old. His father loves him better. Not a good idea for dads to play favorite like that. That's what he does. Therefore, his 11 brothers hate him. They hate him. It says, because of this, verse four, all his brothers hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Then on top of everything, Joseph has a dream that sometime in the distant future, we know now it's 22 years, all those brothers and mom and dad are gonna bow down to him. (laughs) That did not endear him to his brothers at all. And it says in verse five, they hated him all the more. So one day... They're out hitting the flock. They see him coming and their hatred and jealousy boils over. They resolve to kill him. They throw him in a pit. Reuben tries to save him. While Reuben is missing, they sell him to the Midianites into slavery in Egypt. Joseph is bought there by Potiphar. And when his success as a faithful follower of Yahweh, when his success is at its peak and his righteousness is at its most faithful, Potiphar's wife slanders him as a rapist. And Potiphar, in fury, throws him unjustly into jail. And again, his success, the blessing of God on him, his righteousness flourishes, his power to interpret dreams is exercised for the baker and the cup bearer of Pharaoh. The cup bearer goes back to Pharaoh, just like Joseph predicted, and he totally forgets Joseph for two more years. Years. Two years he waits. And now, 13 years has gone by. He's 30 years old. Every time he thought he was under the blessing of God, doing what God wanted him to do, things got worse not better. Pharaoh has a dream. The cupbearer remembers, there's a man in prison who can interpret dreams. He interpreted mine. Go get him. Joseph says to Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Chapter 41, verse 16. The dream is this. There's going to be seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh is so impressed by Joseph's wisdom that he makes him, what, vice president in charge of making sure that during those seven prosperous years, there's enough grain for the seven lean years. And the writer of this story, Moses, makes very clear three times that this prosperity and this famine are the work of God. 
Let me read those to you. Genesis 41, 25. God has revealed to Pharaoh, Joseph says, what he is about to do. Verse 28 of chapter 41. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, Joseph to Pharaoh. The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly, shortly bring it about. So God is bringing on Egypt and the entire region, including where Joseph's brothers live, he's bringing a famine which is going to threaten the existence of God's chosen people. All the while laying a 22 year plan to rescue those people through the very sin of selling Joseph into slavery. And so the general point of the story, God brings his people into life-threatening peril, tests them and plans and performs their salvation through the very peril that he brings. That's the story of Joseph. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of every child of God. When I say that the story of Joseph is the story of your life as a Christian, what I mean is something like this. It comes in answering the question, why do we so often pray, say at the beginning of the day, that such and such won't happen? Breakdown of a car, getting sick with the disease, that some bad thing won't happen. Why do we so often pray that some bad thing won't happen and then in the afternoon it happens? And as it happens, we see that in the very way it is happening, the hand of God, the good hand of God. In other words, it seems to me that pretty normal Christian experience is that God answers prayers inside non-answers. That makes sense. Here's here's the big non-answer. I I didn't want this to happen this afternoon. I, I asked you that it would not happen. It happened. And as it happens, I see your hand all over it for good and for grace. How many times have you heard people talk like this? Maybe it's just because I'm a pastor that I've heard it so often. Pray for safety in the morning. Pray that some terrible accident won't happen. Well, the accident happens in the afternoon. And as I hear them telling me this story, they say things like, if if his head had been a millimeter to the right, he'd be dead. And God didn't let it happen. The woman walking by on the sidewalk was a nurse. The the ambulance came just like that. It was like three minutes. In the hospital, they had an ample supply of his unusual blood type. Never before would they have such a supply. You hear that, right? What in the world? What in the world is that? Because... If I didn't know the story of Joseph, I would be inclined to say, if God's sovereign hand is all over this, why didn't he just prevent it? Why the big non-answer? And then inside the non-answer, all these glorious answers. Why didn't God prevent Joseph from being sold into Egypt? Why didn't he prevent the slander 
of Potiphar's wife. Why didn't he prevent the cupbearer from forgetting Joseph for two more years? Answer. This is the Bible's answer. Because God's way is to bring his people into peril for his wise purposes, all the while planning through the peril their God-exalting rescue. So about 30 years ago, I had four kids at that time. I have five now. Uh, One of them was nine years old. We were hurrying to make a very special occasion in South Carolina with my father driving between Minneapolis and South Carolina, about 1,100 miles. And uh, on the freeway, on Sunday morning, my car dies with four kids and a wife It's hot and it's Sunday. Nothing's open. I look under the hood (laughs) like every man does. Like, what do I know at all about these tangle of wires? Nothing. I'm just looking at it. I've got four kids and I don't know what to do. This is before cell phones. And those of you who are old enough know the humiliating feeling that I don't think anybody's going to stop unless I get on my knees or wave a flag or look desperate. They think we're just doing a bathroom break for these four boys. My son, the nine-year-old, says after my pacing back and forth and doing nothing helpful. Daddy, maybe we should pray. My first thought was, I did pray. We prayed as a family this morning that this wouldn't happen. Of course, I didn't say that. I said, you're right. What what am I thinking? He and I, this nine-year-old, he and I go behind the car. We bow our heads and we ask God to put it in somebody's heart to help us. When we lift up our eyes, a pickup truck has stopped in front of us. The driver of the pickup truck, I kid you not, is a mechanic. He looks under the hood and diagnoses that our water pump needs to be replaced. He says he lives down the freeway, has a shop, and would I like to drive with him to town, get a water pump, and he would put it in the car for us right there on the side of the freeway. And as I drive with him, I tell him about what just happened with the prayer, and I share the gospel with him. What do you make of that? What do you make of that? I had prayed in the morning that God would protect us from harm and trouble. And the car died in the middle of nowhere, as far as I could tell. My interpretation is that this is a parable of the story of Joseph. God did not answer my prayer that we would not have trouble. What, what did he do? He humbled a proud father, number one. He showed his prayer answering power to a nine-year-old in an absolutely stunning way. He got the gospel into the mind and heart of a mechanic. And we were on our way in, I don't know, four or five hours with a new water pump without having to go to a store. This is the way God works. He brings his people into trouble while planning for their good. Suppose Satan was involved in our little event. He broke, he broke the water pump, which he can do, I think. 
because he meant to make us miserable. And he meant that we would lose faith in the goodness of God and his prayer answering power. If that were true, which it may well have been, what would you say to Satan? If you know the story of Joseph, what would you say? I know what you would say. This is what you want your students to say when you're done with the story. Satan, you meant it for evil. My God, who loves me, meant it for good. That's what you'd say. Which is why I say that sentence, chapter 50, verse 20, is like a banner over the entire history of redemption. And at any given point where evil strikes God's people, you can say that sentence truly. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Wherever you're at, BSFers around the globe, join us worshiping the one who was and is and is to come. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise him for he is your health and salvation. Come all you here, now to
Thank you, Roger. Can y'all hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Sorry for the little delay in the audio at the beginning. <laughs> well, we'd still be looking at it, trying to figure it out if I was doing it. So I appreciate that. This was not originally part of the plan, but I just thought that the, the video from Piper was so good that um, it would just be a blessing for everybody to listen to it. Um, there was just a three or four minute thing after with this that um, a lady named Susan Rowland, who is the uh, executive director of Bible Study Fellowship, spoke and she mentioned, she said that uh, right after World War II at the very end of it, um, J.R.R. Tolkien, who is the one that wrote Lord of the Rings, coined a term called eucatastrophe. It's the word catastrophe with the letters E-U in front of it. And E-U, U, is the Greek word for good. So a eucatastrophe is a good catastrophe. It's almost like a contradiction in terms. How can a catastrophe be good? Well, you just saw an example of a catastrophe, selling Joseph into slavery, having falsely accused and then thrown into prison once he had reached a, a, a place of uh, prestige in, in the house of Potiphar, and then being in prison for years, and then finally giving a uh, interpretation to the dream of two other prisoners, and then they get released and one of them gets killed, as he predicted, and the other one gets restored to his position, but he forgets about Joseph, and Joseph stays in prison for two more years, until finally, he, the, the one that's restored tells, the, tells Pharaoh about someone in prison who can interpret dreams, and Joseph gets, interprets the dream, and gets promoted to the second in command of Pharaoh in all of Egypt. And so out of the catastrophe, good things come. Can you think of another one? What readily comes to my mind is the crucifixion. From every point of view, except God's, that's a catastrophe. But that catastrophe, look at the unfathomable good that comes out of it. We have a savior that died for us, that takes away our sins forever. So it's a good catastrophe. It's God's plan. So sometimes that doesn't, now this does not mean that all catastrophes are good, but God uses catastrophes sometimes in a good way. And I just thought it was so important to see this at a time like this. Because what do we see with this pandemic that's going on? What do we see with all of this unrest and civil disobedience? We see some, some terrible things. And who knows but how God might use this to bring about a great blessing. So we need to not be downcast but we need to know that everything's in the hand of God, that he controls all things, that um, when we become Christians, it's like God puts a wedding band on us and says, you're mine. I have always been faithful. Now you be faithful. Trust me. So, does that make sense to anybody? Anybody have any basic questions before I say a few, a few things? Okay. You know, one of the amazing things that strikes me is that those that uh, who've heard me speak before would bother to come back again. So I remind, there's a, there's a, uh, a quote of Charles Spurgeon, 
And he said, if some men were sentenced to hear their own sermons, it would be a righteous judgment upon them. And they would even cry out with Cain, my punishment is greater than I can bear. So thankfully, we don't have to listen to our own sermon very much, or we would wonder why anybody ever came back again. So I appreciate you coming. Thanks for your endurance. One pastor made the comment, I wonder how many churches would actually help spread the gospel by closing down. Now, what does he mean by that? He means a lot of churches simply don't matter very much. And a lot of others, because of the things they believe and what they say, hinder the gospel rather than furthering the gospel. So how does a church make the gospel real and visible? Do we do it by saying that we have faith in Christ? But rather than have our lives and then have our lives look just like everybody else's, if we talk about God and Christ, do we do it with a sense of joy? And do we say it distinctly? Or do we say it in whispers, afraid that a lot of people might hear us and not like it? In the early part of this century, the 21st century, and one man's writing at, at the beginning of what he wrote, he spoke about an English bishop's response to a question about the mission of the church. So when asked about the mission of the church, this English bishop, this is what he said. He said, he seemed taken a little aback by the question but finally allowed that he supposed the mission, so to speak, of the church was something like keeping alive aspects of the Christian heritage for those who are interested in such things. Now, this seems a perfect case of a church having no meaning and hindering the gospel rather than furthering the gospel. And it wouldn't be a sad loss for anybody if the church closed its doors, that particular one. The reason for the local church's existence is to make the unadulterated, the unwavering truth of the gospel visible. If you want a quick summary of the gospel, it's God is holy and loving. It's humans were created, excuse me, it's God is holy and loving. It's humans were created good and in the image of God, but we've sinned against him and now we deserve punishment. It's that Jesus Christ, God's only son, in his mercy has come to rescue us from the guilt and punishment of sin. It's that he lived a perfect life of trust and his heavenly father died in the place of sinners and rose in the dead from the dead in victory over sin and death. And now he calls us to repent of our sins and put our trust in him and being reconciled to God forever. Now you can elaborate on those for hours and hours but that's a succinct condensation of the scripture. And scripture clearly, especially in James and 1 John, teach that, that the Christian life may be personal, but it's not private. It's never private. We're called to share the gospel. We're called to be walking examples of the gospel. Repentance by necessity involves us in the lives of other people. Admitting our sins and repenting of them continually reveals the gospel and makes it credible to other people. It's not credible if we don't live the gospel. 
How believable are people that say they know the Lord, yet their lives are no different than those around them that are not Christians? All of us are, to some extent, preachers, and all of us are, to some extent, evangelists. It's what we're called to be by what we say and how we live. We preach and evangelize with our lives as well as our words. What we do and what we won't do, where we go and where we refuse to go, what we love and what repels us. We can't compare ourselves with others who are amazing preachers and amazing evangelists. And then become discouraged because we're not like them. God doesn't do that and we shouldn't do that either. He hasn't called us to be like everybody else. He's called us to be what he's made us to be. Witnesses with, for his son, witnesses to the truth. If you want a biblical definition of ministry, that'll bring clarity to the goals you should have and to purify your heart and to liberate you, then look at what Paul wrote to Timothy. And, and when he wrote to Timothy, he wrote to all of us. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, it reads, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God, be prepared whether the time is favorable or not, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. He says, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, nothing's hidden from God. There are no secret sins. They may be secret to you and to me, but they're not secret to God. Nothing is hidden from him. There's no different, difficult situation where we are not in the presence of God. God's not like some genie in a bottle that waits for us to summon him. He's always present. So Christ will judge the living and the dead when he comes again. All of us will give an account of how we've used our lives in the service of Christ. Preach the word. That means be a proclaimer of the good news. Preach because the time will come when people will not listen to sound doctrine, to sound teaching. They won't listen because they reject the truth and want to fulfill the craving of their sinful nature. Look around you at the world today. If that's not what's going on, I don't know what is. It's important to have our eyes open so we can see the truth, but it's also vital to have our ears open so that they are keen to hear what the scripture says. Having dull ears means that the word doesn't penetrate. If we don't obey the Lord, it means we really haven't heard him to begin with. In the sixth chapter of Luke, Jesus says, that the people who come to him and listen to his teaching are like those that build their house on solid rock. And when floodwaters come, the house will not be shaken. In contrast, the one who hears but doesn't obey is like the man who builds his house on sand. When the floods come, his house will collapse into a heap of ruins. We long to see how God reveals himself to us. Consider what he's done. When Adam and Eve sinned, 
they were cast out of the garden. They lost sight of God. They couldn't see him anymore. But then in his grace, God spoke a word of promise to them. When they were cast out of the sight of the eye of God, or of the eye, God came to them by the word addressed to their ears. Romans 10, 17 puts it so we can understand it. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's possible to create a people, a people group, by focusing on certain goals or on what they get excited about. Maybe a great choir program, maybe wonderful home groups where people feel connected and cared for, or some worthy civic project, and so on. But we can only have the true church of God if it's been created and sustained by the word of God. That's what feeds the soul. And without it, the soul shrivels up, and so do we, because we are that. The church is important because it's tied to the gospel itself. It's what the gospel looks like when it's displayed in the lives of people. And speaking about God's eternal plan, Paul in Ephesians 3, 10 and 11 says, God's purpose in all of this, his plan in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom and its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So again, the church exists to make the true gospel visit, visible to our families, our neighbors, and the world. Maybe this is what that bishop, that English bishop, didn't understand. That's why the church exists, to make the true gospel visible to our neighbors, our friends, to the whole world. So all of this is sort of a preamble to see the gospel's call to us to be faithful. When speaking about the, the fall in the Garden of Eden, Martin Luther says this. He says, the fall is first and foremost a fall away from faith. It's a fall away from the trust in God. And it was devastating. And it's devastating to us if we fall away from trust, if we fall away from faith. Faith is the right relationship with God. To have faith is to live as God intends us to live. This is what one pastor has said. If you and I have been entrusted with the old, old story, we must not alter adjust or add to that story. Instead, we must faithfully proclaim it. Here is something I've discovered. Faithful proclamation of the messes, message requires an unwavering commitment to unoriginality. We must have an unwavering commitment to unoriginality. In his book, Pastoral Theology, a man named Thomas Oden wrote this at the beginning of, his, of this book. I hope this work will be as unoriginal as possible. This is the first time I have attempted to write an entire text with an absolutely clear commitment to unoriginality. Now, why in the world are they saying that? It's important because if we don't resolve to be unoriginal, we'll be enamored by all that's new, trendy, popular, and supposedly original. If we don't resolve to be unoriginal, we'll be easily distracted by matters of secondary importance church structures and administration will trump gospel preaching. 
our intelligence, our speaking skills, our speaking ability, our personality will take precedence over our faithfulness to the message of the gospel. If we don't resolve to be unoriginal, we'll lose sight of what matters the most. 1 Corinthians 15. The first few verses reads, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you receive, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remained until now, but some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. What is of most importance? What if, what, is most important is that Christ died for our sins. How? In accordance with the scripture, in accordance to the written word, the word of God, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day. Again, in accordance with the scriptures. Faithfulness to read the word and to proclaim the word and to demonstrate the fruit of the word requires that we preserve and good persevere in good times and in difficult ones faithfully proclaiming the gospel isn't appealing to a large segment of society and when the message is not appealing we can be tempted to compromise because we don't like the crowd not liking us john stott writes this Whenever the biblical faith becomes unpopular, ministers are sorely tempted to mute those elements which give the most offense. Being faithful means we must proclaim the truth of scripture, whether our listeners are receptive, indifferent, or even antagonistic. There's a very difficult phrase in that section of 2 Timothy that we read, and chapter 4 verse 2 it says preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke exhort and here comes the part that's uh seems impossible for so many of us the phrase with complete patience reprove rebuke exhort with extreme patience complete patience. Again, to quote J.I. Packer, he says, learn to marvel at God's patience. If you have got to marvel, it says you have got to marvel before you can imitate. Have you marveled at it recently? If you haven't, if you haven't, that is, so all of this is sort of, excuse me, Got to the wrong place here. He says, learn to marvel at his patience toward you and to seek grace to imitate that patience in your feelings with others. Thankfully, Psalm 103.10 says, he does not punish us for all of our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. And I'd just like to close with, with two scriptures or two references to scriptures. Revelation 1.5 calls Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, the faithful witness, Jesus Christ. 
and in Revelation 2.10, it tells us to be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So in all of this, the, the message is to be faithful to the gospel, to hear what the gospel says, because the time of us seeing God, other than very unusual circumstances that the Lord would choose to appear to us in some form, we're supposed to hear with our ears. And when we're told to hear, it means hear with obedience directly following. Because to truly hear what God says means you love what he says and your heart is thrilled and joyous with being obedient. So that's the message. All catastrophes are not horrible catastrophes, but God brings many of them about in our lives that are wrapped up in such a way as to allow him to, to show us things that we would never see otherwise. I cannot imagine that there are very few of you that cannot look back in your lives, maybe at a point before you knew the Lord, and you can see his hand on you, even when you didn't realize that's what was going on. I know I can through a number of things, and I can look back and I say, if it hadn't been for the hand of God, you know, I, I, well, I wouldn't be here. But I didn't know it at the time. I can look back at things that were very difficult and calling out on God, and I go, God, why don't you answer me? And then later on, when he did answer me, I could look back and see the molding that was going on. And I didn't even realize. So if you would, let's pray and we'll close out our time together. Lord, I pray that we would be able to see your hand in all the ways that we normally don't see your hand. That we would not become discouraged or dismayed. And that even when we do, Lord, when one becomes discouraged, that the others would lift him up so that when they become discouraged or they become exalted, they can lift us up. Lord, we just want your hand upon us. We want our eyes open and our ears keen to hear. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Greg, would you like to answer a few questions or entertain comments, or would you like us to enter back into a place of worship? Well, you can ask if there are any questions or any comments people want to make. And, and if not, then you can go right ahead, Mary. If there are if there are questions, you can open it up to everybody. My fountain of wisdom is not real deep. Oh, uh, it is very deep. Any any comments before we? Yeah. So, um, coming from a family of artists, to be original has always been. Um, um, valuable in our family <laughs> to be creative and to be original and to be, um, you know, but not with the gospel, <laughs> not with the gospel. And I, I love the way you put that because it kind of um, grabbed my attention because to be an original sounds, I don't know. I mean, you know, from an artist's perspective, it doesn't sound very good. But from God's perspective, you can't, you can't stray from, from his word um, or it could be trouble. <laughs> so anyway, I appreciate, um, I appreciate that, Greg. Good, great message. Yeah, I was thinking about that too, Greg. That's quite a statement about being unoriginal in the gospel. And I, I made me think about, we don't stray from the originality of the gospel, but how it's applied. Um, in, diff in different generations, how it's applied in each culture, um, it requires that ongoing seeking of the Lord and discernment um, because the application of the scripture um, might look different from culture to culture, um, but, the, but the, the gospel itself isn't going to waver. Um, so, I mean, for, for example, I remember working in Africa and certain cultural practices that were 
very destructive. Um, like, for example, uh, ancestor worship, you know, ancestor worship. You know, what do you do with that with the gospel? Well, and um, I saw Asians and Africans really seek the Lord and say, Father, how do we teach our people that ancestor worship is not, uh, is not what we're supposed to do, and yet it's, so, it's a cultural way of honoring your ancestors. And so as they prayed and sought the Lord, the Lord revealed to them, well, what you can do is you can create a, another way to honor your ancestors without worshiping them, without building an altar to them. And so you can honor your ancestors, which is a cultural value, but you don't, you don't stray away from the fact that you don't have any other gods before the Lord. So I thought that, you know, that, and that has always provoked my thinking about how um, that we're always challenged to keep seeking the Lord. How do I take your word and how do I apply it into the unique situation that I find myself in, or even whether it's cultural or, or a family situation or whatever. So, but, but I really appreciated your word, Greg, about the faithfulness and that story of Joseph. Uh, what a, a, a great reminder that all that's going on around us, if we, if we look at it as a terrible disaster, you, have, you get really depressed. But if you look at it as God's hand is at work and, and uh, it could be a you catastrophe that he's going to bring glory out of it. So that was very encouraging. Thank you, Greg. Greg, I wanted to know if you could share the link so we could hear that John Piper message in its entirety or re-listen to it again. Is that something that you could share on the loop? Yes. Thank you. Actually, that is something I wanted to share. It, it really meant a lot to me to hear what John Piper had to say and also what you said, Greg, about the you catastrophe with... Um, us attempting to figure out whether God wants us to be involved more in DC with the Cedars. <laughs> we had a call this week with somebody who's been there, been with them for years. And um, she said, it's a matter of being able to live within between tension or with a tent. Yeah. It's a matter of living, being able to live with a tension of having a plan and yet letting the spirit guide and lead and <clears throat> as we kind of observe and understand the situation more and more it's it comes very close to catastrophe <laughs> it's for sure we're for sure in a state of chaos um and it could very well end in a state of catastrophe but but no having heard that again really encouraged me today to not let that be a guide that it got, that God might not have a plan <clears throat> um, for this group of people. So it was very encouraging to me to accept chaos and catastrophe because we know that God is in it and he very well can give us a plan, um, a godly plan, how to move forward. So thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Well, and then another thing, um, when you said you have to first marvel before you can imitate, and that was something I had, I don't have that very often, but this past week uh, when I was praying, I, because Auntie is pregnant and we see, get all these pictures of the baby and you now the ultrasound pictures of the baby. And I was just thinking, <laughs> that's amazing, you know, how every little cell has its destination and knows how to grow. Who tells, who tells the cell to grow into a kidney or to grow into a heart valve or, you know, into a little fingertip, whatever. So I was so marveling at God, the creator, when I thought about that. Because when you start thinking about these details, I was telling myself, there's no end to it. You, could, you just go on to nature, to the universe. I mean, there's just no end to God's greatness and um, and authority. And um, so thank you for kind of confirming that marveling is part of it. So we can actually go out and share, share the good news. 
So thanks. Well, Antia, congratulations. I didn't know. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yay. Yes. Yeah. We are totally excited too. Greg, I thought about the story of Stephen when you were talking about um, that our work should be about the business of, of telling others and living out our lives before others. And, and when Stephen was being stoned to death and he looks up and he says, um, don't, Father, for, forgive them. Let's see, I... I wrote down the specific, Lord, do not hold this sin against them while he was being stoned. And uh, the statement about from, from every viewpoint except God's, things can look like a catastrophe. And if there ever was a catastrophe, that would have been another one of those times when here was his faithful man of God being stoned to death. And yet there was Paul standing, holding the coats of the ones that, that were stoning him. And, um, and so from our perspective, we see one thing, but from God's view, he sees an entirely different thing. And he is the one who is faithful and he is the one whose perspective is the most significant. And I'm so grateful when he gives us a little glimmer into what his perspective is. I think that's where we find great encouragement. So, um, I, um, I would like us to end with, with a couple of um, songs or parts of a couple of songs. I, I, had, I had one that we were going to do called Faithful One, um, So Unchanging, and it says, um, You're my rock in times of trouble. You lift me up when I fall down. All through the storm, your love is the anchor. My hope is in you alone. Um, but... I would like to just leave you with those words and then start off with this next song. If you will mute and join me. And if you would like to stand up when you're singing it, um, I would love that. Salvation belongs to our God. The answers, <laughs> the answers belong to our God. Salvation belongs to our
in the days to come that we will stand in awe of you. Last week, Lord, we heard about seeing with your eyes. Today, we heard about your perspective and seeing things from your perspective and not our own. Give us eyes of faith, hope, and courage to stand firm in you, the faithful one, the one who brings salvation, the one who is salvation, and Lord, the one that, that we continually can say, I stand in awe of you. We bless you, Jesus. I pray for our church this week. I pray for um, Mike Stockstill as he's celebrating his birthday and Jessica Sneed as she celebrates her birthday. Lord, we pray for Galena as she's in Istanbul, uh, whether she's in the airport or wherever she is on our way to Russia. We pray for Carla and Richard as they'll be heading out to, to see their new grandbaby. We pray for Antia as she would be carrying the life of a child. Lord, we pray for all the needs that, that, um, that are in the hearts of all of our people. Jesus, thank you, thank you for being worthy and holy and faithful and true and just. We stand in awe of you and pray in your great, magnificent name. Amen. Amen. Greg, again, thank you. And I tell you, I sure want to say that I love all y'all. I love seeing your faces and can't wait to see them in person. And um, we will see you again on Wednesday night on Zoom if you can join us for the prayer meeting. I think that's all, folks.